Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. John, um, I, Zach, behind me, and, I, and, I, and again, I may be George, do you know what's behind me? Can you, can you tell what that is? Got, um, some kind of flower. Um, let me try and guess what it is. Not what I see around these parts. <laughs> well, it's supposed to be a geranium. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, yes. And yes. you've got a you've got a blog site called Hopeful Geranium, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Which I um is a term I stole from Eric von Stroheim and Cecil B. DeMille. So it's just a symbol in their films. It turns up as a symbol in their films to represent hope in the most dire, you know, in a slum or something like that. There'll be a geranium sitting on the windowsill, and that's like the hope of that character living in that room. Um, you know, they might be in a poor. And um, von Stroheim was in, um, is it, um, forget the name of it, but Renoir's film about the prison camp, and he, where he played the guard, and they used the symbol there too. So it's sort of been trans, was in a few of those early classic cinemas. So I, I like that idea. So. Well, interesting. So I've got a geranium behind me just to, just to, just to, just to something to personalize this episode a little bit. I wasn't sure what else I was going to put up there with you, but um, you are in New Zealand. Am I not? Am I, is that correct? Yes. I'm in Auckland, New Zealand. Well, well, Kiora. So I mean, yeah. <laughs> and Zach and I, we've had a number of folks from New Zealand on the show. Now we had Bart K a couple of weeks ago and I think we had, yeah. uh, who else do we have there? We had, uh, oh, I can't remember somebody. We've had some more Kiwis on, haven't we? Oh, we had, we had Owen Franks. Uh, Owen Franks, yeah, one of your New Zealand All Blacks, uh, one of the rugby players. So, George, can you tell us a little bit? Because I, 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 I follow you on Twitter, and I see you've got just a lot of just good knowledge on a number of topics, and and you, you you're very thought provoking, and a lot of people are very excited to, to just to hear what you have to say. And so, give us a little bit about your background for those that aren't familiar with with who you are and what you do. Yeah. Um. Okay. Um. This is a it's kind of a complicated story, but I was kind of um. Um, uh, I've been a musician, like a rock musician, since I was a teenager, um, and I, you know, got into self-medicating or, you know, taking drugs for fun, whichever you prefer, and um, that probably turned into self-medicating, and um, I got myself really sick, you know, with drug abuse and, you know, multiple, multiple drug abuse, you name it, I've taken it, if it was available here, and, um, and, um, and hepatitis C and developed a really bad liver disease. So I've kind of had a lot of different syndromes and conditions over the years and, and it all kind of piled up into hep C genotype three with a fatty liver disease. The virus causes insulin resistance this I learned is part of its life cycle. You know, it wants to do that. It wants you to have fat in its liver, have fat in your liver, so it can replicate. And um, and one day I just got 
someone suggested to me, you know, researching hep C, I just thought, well, maybe there's something I need to know about my condition. Maybe there's some shortcut that will make things easier. Went to the med school library, read some books on the liver, just some, you know, doctor's desktop reference books, and they had a fair bit of information about nutrition. And I thought, I know this stuff. It's in the shops, in the, it's in the health shop where I buy my, you know, granola or whatever crap I was buying at the time. And um, I um, went and bought all the supplements they mentioned, started eating a higher protein diet and started feeling better within a couple of weeks and just followed that path um, right down to having you know, good energy and fitness, having reasonable liver enzymes for someone with hep C and um, running into some other problems, which were... Um, you know, like trying to eat healthily, my food intolerances were becoming more obvious. Um, tr um, I was getting side effects from some of the supplements, you know, like, you know, paradoxing, like, you know, like don't do it kids, you know, in any, in any large amounts. Um, I was spending heaps of money and I was looking for another, you know, a, a, another answer because there's no good protocol for this stuff. And um, I, I used to buy low carb, you know, so buy secondhand books that had vitamin stories in them and to, to try and learn more. And I had the Dr. Atkins age defined diet and the Dr. Atkins diet revolution. I had Michael Eads protein power and I started reading things in those. I mean, I was underweight, so I was paying no attention to the low carb message, but I started reading things in those that made me think, hang on, these results that Atkins is getting on lipid profiles are the ones you'd want if you had hep C. They would improve the prognosis. They're associated with improved prognosis. Um, what Dr. Reeds is saying about insulin and inflammation, hepatitis is an inflammatory disease. So it all started to make sense. And then I started to um, you know, just try carbohydrate restriction. And I found a lot of the symptoms I still had went away. And then I um, was... I went for a hepatitis C resource center at this time. So I'd been unemployed for about, unemployable for about 25 years and um, on a sickness benefit and so on. And um, I was working for a hep C resource center and I was answering emails. People would say, you know, what should I eat when I have hep C? It was a really common question. All the stuff I'd learned, I'd put in them. And at the bottom, because I was starting to talk about low carb, I'd say, and don't eat too much saturated fat because, you know, that's what everyone was supposed to say. And one day I wrote that, I thought, why am I writing this? This could be really important. This could be the, the one thing I need to know is the effect of saturated fat on liver disease. So I looked it up and bam, got all, all the hit results for the, the Nanjian French research. Saturated fat protects against alcoholic liver disease. Saturated fat protects against acetaminophen poisoning. Saturated fat protects against carbon tetrachloride poisoning. You name it, here's these animals being given stuff that'll wipe the liver out in no time at all. And they're bulletproof if they're eating beef fat and they're going to hell in a handbasket if they're being fed soy oil or corn oil. And that was kind of the magic moment because as soon as I threw out the oil and started eating beef fat and, um, you know, and this led me into kind of a carnival pattern for a while, um, things got very better very quickly and I just didn't need the supplements anymore. And so by the time the new hep C antivirals came on the market. I got into one of the, um, well, before they did, I got into one of the clinical trials for that. So I got my treatment free. It worked very quickly. When I started the trial, my AST and ALT were 30 and they're 15 now. So this is like, you know, like a, a, what, a what a healthy child should have. Um, uh, I had no fat left in my liver. I had the lowest viral load of anybody in the trial that I was in. 
And they also gave me things like, you know, complete blood screens and ECG regularly. So I knew that all that was fine. So, um, yeah. And um, that's kind of how I, yeah, how I got into science and got, got career and so on. Sure. I mean, that, I mean, that's fascinating. And I've seen that, you know, with, with particular with regard to like saturated fat preventing, uh, you know, damage by ethanol, you know, with alcohol. And so it's, it's interesting. So I, and it's fascinating that you brought up that, you know, these uh, sort of seed oils, potentially soybean oil and whatnot does has the opposite effect. Can we, can we talk a little bit more about that? What, what, what does the data show with regard to saturated fat versus, you know, these other oils and how that mechanism may or may not work if you, if you, if you're, if you're yes. able to. Yeah. Um, so this starts with, um, I think Nanji and French doing, I think it goes back to 1975. I mean, Nanji and um, Samuel French. Um, I believe in 1965, they first did a kind of a survey and it's just a ecological survey. So you're just looking at countries. So very, you know, it's not, this is not great. This is like the, the, the worst form of epidemiology, if you like. So they're just looking at countries. And, but they do also have the Canadian provinces, which is kind of a tighter, you know, controlled fit. And um, they're finding this pattern that where people eat more polyunsaturated fat, they have higher rates of alcoholic liver disease per capita alcohol consumption. And where people eat more beef fat, in particular, they have lower rates of um, alcoholic liver disease. And also there's a correlation for pork that's you know um that they're seeing consistently this is, this is at that time one of the more polyunsaturated meats um when you know there was probably less oil in the food supply and so then they set up a feeding experiment to test it and um this and the feeding this is really interesting because at first they couldn't get an animal model of alcoholic liver disease um because they were just using normal um rat chow which is about 5% fat or less. So in the absence of fat, they weren't seeing, you know, they, they had to make the animal get alcoholic liver disease at a low enough alcohol intake to um, be, make room for the food. You know, they couldn't just squeeze all the food out of it, have nothing to test. So they eventually, um, they, they eventually found, well, put in the 35% calories as corn oil or soy oil, put in your fat calories as corn oil or soy oil, and bam, the liver enzymes go up, uh, fat starts to accumulate in the liver, Scarring occurs. Some of the animals even get tumours by the end of the experiment. Feed the control for the other group beef fat or MCT oil or cocoa butter. Those are the usual ones that are tested. And you just see a very slight increase in fat that isn't pathological and no disease, no disease whatsoever. And they say, in one of the papers, they say, you know, we did not need to do a statistical analysis. You could just look at the slides and you knew. You know, there's no, this isn't the kind of small effects like we gave this rat a high fat diet and this rat a normal diet and the rat in the high fat diet had increased inflammatory enzymes. You know, it's not that kind of small shift in a biomarker. This is like, if you ran this experiment for long enough, half the rats would be dead and half the rats are still living. That's, it's just that clean. And so can you extrapolate it to humans? Well, I know hospitals or some hospitals around in Auckland do, but they do feed people with alcoholic liver disease, beef fat, um, and avoid feeding them oils. I've seen it in clinical advice. Um, a guy called McCain, I think, or McLean, um, has summarized clinical advice and part of that's to avoid seed oils. And I've seen it in a BMJ student training manual suggested as a, as a therapy. Um, the 
aspect of actually testing it, um, to test it in humans, you'd have to keep them drinking for a reasonable period of time. I don't think the ethics committee would allow that, and I think administratively it would be a nightmare trying to keep people, you know, in sort of in a state of constant alcoholism, keep tabs on them. <laughs> I can think of ways it could be tested in short-term studies using biomarkers with healthy volunteers. Um, so that's maybe something to do. But um, but yeah, the mechanisms. You want to know the you want to know the mechanisms. Hey, eh? what's what's actually causing this? And and I think at the start it was just well, polyunsaturated fats are more uh, labile. They're going to be transformed more easily. Therefore, you know they're going to be more affected by oxidative stress. And that's you know that's a that's a pretty solid mechanism. And that explains things like one of the first things that happened when I started eating beef fat instead of rice bran oil is I stopped burning easily. Like if I burn myself, I'm not going to get a blister. I'm going to get pain, but the scar is going to be gone in a couple of days. You know, it's just, it's not what used to happen. And that's because of peroxidation. That's just because of the spread of damage through a polyunsaturated fat um, membrane as opposed to a more saturated one. Um, and, but as they go down, as they do the research now, every time they do it, and there's a team read, read by Irina Kerpich now that has taken up Nanji and French's um, research and, and they'd be the modern experts. And as they do it, they look at all the different path, pathways. So over time, they've studied liver disease and cell cultures and humans, you know, and, and all the biopsy and everything. And they've followed, um, they know that certain pathways are activated. Um, in the lead up to cirrhosis. So they look at the effect of the fat change on each of these pathways individually. Now, a good one is um, the CYP pathway that breaks down alcohol because lo and behold, you know, we, we did not evolve to break down a bottle of gin. You know, you, know you, you, you if adaptation allows us to kind of tolerate toxins, at what point in our history did we get did we adapt to, um, you know, a pound of alcohol going through our stomach in a day, which is kind of what, what an alcoholic can do. We, we couldn't possibly have done that. But what happens is that alcohol fits into um, the CYP enzyme for breaking down polyunsaturated fats. So we have enzymes for transforming polyunsaturated fats. And they are close enough match for alcohol that when you start drinking heavily, when you drink beyond what, you know, you can normally metabolize and you have to start detoxifying it, then your CYP shoots up, CYP, I forget the exact number, but it shoots up tenfold. So you have a tenfold activation of the enzyme, which the normal job is to transform polyunsaturates. So that starts spitting out 10 times as much polyunsaturate byproduct. And so you get the polyunsaturates going into the usual inflammatory, anti-inflammatory pathways, but because it's revved up so high, it doesn't match the rest of the enzyme systems. And so you get these munted byproducts that you don't want that are then damaging and inflammatory. So that's, that's part of it. And a feature of these studies, animal studies, is that when you switch the fat, halfway through the experiment, you stop feeding the alcohol, you stop feeding um, alcohol, you stop feeding vegetable oil. Um, if you keep feeding vegetable oil, the animal will keep getting worse. You don't need to keep feeding the alcohol. You start a chain reaction, it'll keep going. But um, if, you, um, stop the ex if you stop feeding the alcohol and change to beef fat, everything gets better. So the situation actually starts to resolve um, because um, there's no longer anything to feed into the um, CYP enzymes to, to there's, less, there's kind of less stuff going into that pathway. So that's one 
one mechanism. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, George, I, you know, and at the CYP, and I think there's like the CYP1, alpha one, and I know that, that's utilized for a number of detoxification systems, but you know, because you're talking about alcoholic liver disease as as, an, as it occurs in alcohol from from exposure to ethanol, and and that the role that that these polyunsaturated fats, and we talk about polyunsaturated, uh, when, you know, just just to clarify, a saturated fat has all of its you know hydrogen you know atoms are, are filling all the spaces. They don't have the double bonds, which are easily oxidized. Well, that's why the polyunsaturates are easy to to oxidize yeah, well, the, the whole stack of single bonds which are more stable right so the saturated fats are actually the stable fats and the polyunsaturated fats are the unstable fats more susceptible to oxidation um i wanted to um i wanted to assess you know because we see you know a lot of well i would say non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in the population now and I wonder if similar things are going on because I know guys like Robert Lustig would point to fructose as a, as a big driver of this. Do you see any parallels with seed oils and the non-alcoholic fatty liver version of this? Yes, there are. Um, there's, there are animal experiments where they're feeding um, coconut oil and butter to an animal model in an animal model of non-alcoholic non-alcoholic fatty liver disease progressing to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is the you know, cirrhosis pathway for NAFLD. And um, you, the fat, the fat does not accumulate in the liver unless there's a reasonable amount of polyunsaturated fat. So it's still required for the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in these models. Um, if you put in enough fructose, would that overpower that and still put the fat there? Probably. You know, there's a synergy between there's a synergy between fructose and especially linoleic acid in in the animal experiments. Um, definitely, definitely, and and of course, um, choline choline availability is is another critical factor. So restriction of you know choline and methionine is 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 definitely a risk factor. And I had an interesting. Um, like a friend of mine is a, um, a vegan and um, he was telling me that he was getting fatty liver disease and he knew that I'd had hepatitis, so he knew that I might know something about it. And, and, and I just was like, well, what are you eating? What sort of foods are you eating? Eating whole foods? Are you just eating, you know, vegan takeaway foods? You know, I'm mostly vegan takeaway foods. You know, I'm not particularly, you know, good at that. And I said, well, your diet's probably low in choline. Have you got any objection to eating eggs if you could find one that was ethically sourced and he, and he said well you know and i gave him kind of like the rescue hen analogy like you you know you have you rescue some hen from a factory farm and it keeps laying is it unethical just to eat the eggs i mean if you leave them there they're going to attract predators anyway i mean it's not you know it's you're not doing any favors by leaving the egg necessarily so he's uh, and he's, he said no actually you don't have a problem with that sort of thing i always find some really ethical eggs and he he did and he only had like one or two a week you know he wasn't eating them every day and his liver enzymes are now back in the normal range um you know, I gave him a bit of other advice as well, but you know, it was all mainly focused on choline and um, and you know, restricting sugar as well. Um, so yeah, yeah, so we have to you know remember that choline is a is a is a big player here, and methionine as well. Yeah, and those things are more readily found in animal animal sourced uh, foods than that's than, right. Than you see, right. That's right. But if you were on a plant, uh, you know, say plant based, but if you're on a vegan diet. And everything you ate was whole. So you were eating whole greens, whole fruit, whole root veggies, whatever. 
a few nuts and seeds, you definitely get enough, you know, because it's in all the cell walls of everything in small amounts. So if everything you eat has its cell walls intact, I don't think you're going to be choline deficient, although you may have a low enough methionine intake that you need more choline than the average person. That's definitely possible because you can make some choline from methionine. Um, but it's really when you start to get into the, um, you know, the, 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 the basic vegan menu, which is you go to McDonald's and you have everything without the meat and cheese, you know, and you go, or you go to a pizza place and you get everything without the meat and cheese, you know, and then you just um, on the pathway to nutritional rack and ruin. Yeah. It sounds like uh, the, the kiss of death, so to speak, is combining the, the vegetable oils with the sugars, which is ironically what we end up finding in kind of what you described or in a lot of the packaged food that we're getting in some of this new kind of, like vegan junk food. I think, I think the vegans would even agree with me <laughs> to some degree with that. But um, yeah, so that's kind of that, that perfect storm of, of negativity in terms of assaulting your, your nutrition. Yeah, when I was a teenager and I was going out for drinks with my older workmates, they'd say, oh, before you go out drinking, eat a mutton pie. It'll put a lining on your stomach. Now a mutton pie is um, in those days was so full of fat, it looked like a candle. And um, you know, it has solid fat in it. And um, you know, they were right. And nowadays, somebody goes out drinking and they get hungry and they're going to go straight to a greasy chip joint. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have, they're going to have a, a highly polyunsaturated meal and they're going to have, um, uh, and probably have sugar with that as well. I don't know that throwing sugar into the context of you know, acute alcohol consumption is actually a bad thing. I think small amount, I've seen some evidence that small amounts of fructose actually help the metabolism of alcohol, lower blood alcohol levels and are kind of providing, um, you know, I mean, one of the things about alcohol metabolism, if, if you're only metabolizing alcohol, you don't have food in your system, you are depleting your NADA, NAD plus, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of depleting that what the, the um, coenzyme that you need to then turn the fat from the alcohol back into energy. Uh, which is why the fat sticks in your liver, and um, the um, and you know anything else that you eat along with that is going to, to supply the enzyme that you need to process the alcohol better. So there's a there's a little bit of kind kind of like there's probably a point at which sugar is you know some sugar is better than nothing, but um, but yeah, I mean if you if if you have a massive sugar intake alongside a massive alcohol intake, it's probably not good. But I I just can't really find good data on that. The oil data is more. Is more convincing. Hey, George, uh, there's a couple of things you had mentioned that, that you feel comfortable talking about. One of them was the topic of cholesterol transport. Do you want to do you want to delve into that topic a little bit? Yeah, well, okay. So the first thing I, you know, as, as soon as I discovered the Nanjian French research, and here we have you know, an organ in a highly vulnerable state, and here you, you're pumping in this stuff, beef fat, that we've been told is toxic for years. You know, we've been told not to touch it. And this highly vulnerable organ, is now protected, is getting better. And it just makes you think, just how, you know, how does this make sense? How does it make sense that this stuff is going to cause heart disease? Um, You know, it's possible, but it becomes less likely. It suddenly becomes a lot less likely when you find out it's kind of not toxic in the way you thought. And um, that led me to trying to understand kind of the meaning of lipoprotein measures and the, the, hand, the body's handling of saturated fat and how those interrelate. And um, 
And um, long story short, because you know Dave Feldman's research, and, and I think that's a very important kind of underpinning to the understanding of this in the low-carb context particularly. Um, but um, I, um, because of my background in, in reading about the liver and you know, liver research, I knew that cholesterol was a problem. Cholesterol accumulates in a diseased liver. Um, you can't clear it, you know, you, you, you're synthesizing it at a high rate, it's not getting out on the lipoproteins, whatever, but you have this, in, in non-alcoholic steatal liver disease, you have a buildup of cholesterol in the liver and it causes all kinds of harm. So I knew that cholesterol itself was not this kind of wonder repair molecule, you know, that this kind of a, this kind of a, a, a kind of a, you know, natural kind of naturalist or whatever you want to call it natural fallacy view of cholesterol is you know you're making it for a reason it's, it's got to be good for you and i knew that wasn't true i knew that um you know if you if you if you had a build up of cholesterol anywhere surplus to requirements in the body it was going to do things like apoptosis and you know it was going to kill off cells whether you wanted it to or not and um and and you know disrupt their functioning in various ways disrupt mitochondria and so forth all sorts of things you don't necessarily want unless you're running autophagy and um and and so i came from from that perspective of yeah of course this is a potential i mean think about it here's a molecule it's like you know it's like barely soluble it's easily crystallizable you can make it and you can't break it down there's no metabolic pathway for taking a cholesterol molecule and turning it back into you know carbon energy units it has to be excreted i mean a little bit gets broken down when it's converted to vitamin d because that's a splitting the molecule a bit making it a bit more vulnerable but that pathway is has to be minimal it can't you know there's so much cholesterol in your body that's not a realistic way of getting rid of it so it, it just has to be you know go through your 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 bile intrahepatic circulation be regulated in that way which it is so um so I, you know, I I didn't have this naive view that the more the more cholesterol in your body the better, but I did know that you. But I did work out quickly that lipoproteins don't have a lot to do necessarily with how much cholesterol is in your body, how much cholesterol is in your cells. You know, you have something like thirty grams of cholesterol in your body if you're a normal weight, and um, and um, only a fraction of that. I forget how much. There's a tiny amount in your lipoproteins, and um. And there's, there's, there's less in your lipoproteins than there is in your red and white blood cells usually. So we're, we're really talking, we're really looking at something that's like a, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at, um, uh, we're looking at courier vans on the road at one given point in time and trying to work out how many people are, are buying a copy of, um, you, know, uh, you know, Sports Illustrated or something like that. You know, how many people are getting that delivered to their homes? That's kind of what we're doing. And um, it, it's, um, you know, you need to know, are the vans going back to the factory? Are they taking stuff back or are they taking it out? You know, it's, it's kind of, um, it, it's kind of, you need, you need to know the directionality of the system and you need to know if it's working in its proper job, which is of balancing the cholesterol in the cells. So ideally what happens is, you synthesize cholesterol in your cells if you're not eating it. Now, only about 10% is normally synthesized in the liver, although that would go up a lot higher if you, you're eating a very low cholesterol diet and you know, you, you know, there are reasons why it could go a lot higher. But um, most of it's being made in your cells and it's being um, carried away from the cells on lipoproteins like HDL and um, it's... Um, 
and being transferred to the LDL via the CEDP, um, the sort of docking tunnel in exchange for triglycerides is a fascinating thing, and um, eventually gets back to your liver where it can be turned, put back into your bile, and a lot of that will be reabsorbed with the fat you eat, and, and you know, recycling becomes very efficient in some states, like fasting. And um, so you really want to know how is that, you know, is that working? Is it flowing freely? Because this is, if there's a, a free flow of cholesterol around your body, so that it's not accumulating in cells and accumulating in macrophages, then I don't see that it matters what the level in your blood is necessarily. Um, that would seem to be the point of, of kind of, of Dave Feldman's stuff is that, you know, if you, because the, the, the um, the lipid triad that he's looking at with the low triglycerides, high HDL, and perhaps high high LDL, not necessarily, but perhaps high LDL, is um, to me is associated with kind of an ideal situation for reverse cholesterol transport, for the, the 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 removal of cholesterol from cells. Whether it's leaving the body, I don't think is necessarily that important. How you know uh, um, if it's parked in the blood. It's, it's parked in the blood because the cells don't want it. The macrophages don't want it. When your insulin is low and your glucose is low, the macrophage uptake of LDL <coughs> is minimal and mac macrophage expression of cholesterol is, is maximal. And, and so you really have a kind of rejection of, of cholesterol by macrophages. That's part of the reason why it's higher in the blood. Um, you have a rejection by adipose because if adipose is growing, it needs cholesterol as part of any cell expanding needs more cholesterol. That's why your body um, synthesizes cholesterol. It's part of the cellular structure. So any cell that's growing is going to need a bit more. Any cell that's shrinking is going to dump a bit. Um, and um, so you have all these explanations of why there may be more cholesterol than the LDL. And, but then understanding this, I was, I was like, well, there's a couple of other things that need to fit in with this picture. This cannot exist alone. This kind of, um, you know, keto high cholesterol picture cannot exist alone. It has to be somehow compatible with the saturated fat thing in the first place. The idea that saturated fat raises your cholesterol. Um, you know, people say, oh, the only reason, you know, you, you're getting so, such high cholesterol on keto is because you're eating saturated fat. So is, does that explain it? And if you look at, um, if, if you look at, Fasting studies, you can clearly see the effect of fat burning when you're eating no fat, when you're eating no cholesterol. So here's somebody, they're, they're kind of a lean, healthy person. They fast for three days and their LDL cholesterol and their ApoB are almost doubled. So you're seeing that same fat burning rise without eating any cholesterol at all and without eating any saturated fat at all. And then you look at the, um, the saturated fat research and there are only two saturated fats that raise the LDL cholesterol in the feeding studies. And these are lauric acid, which is your main coconut oil saturated fat. And then there's myristic acid, which is, um, you get pretty generous amounts of this in butter and there's a bit in coconut oil as well. And these two saturated fats are the ones that, you know, in the feeding studies reliably give you a, a rise in LDL, at least in healthy people, because this is kind of a, another thing to come back to. This is something that we see in healthy volunteers, a sign of health. And um, now if you look at the um, epidemiology of different saturated fatty acids, lauric acid and myristic acid have a lower association with cardiovascular disease than 
the saturated fats like palmitic acid and stearic acid that don't raise LDL. So how does that make sense? Well, to me, I can explain that actually. If they all have the same effect, let's assume that they all have the same effect. I can actually explain that. Coconut oil and butter are a bit more expensive. They're going to be eaten by people with a bit more money. <laughs> so I don't necessarily think that shows any difference at all. It just, but that, that kind of bias is all through epidemiology, and that's why you can't trust it. Um, but anyway, um, but anyway, there's another reason why they wouldn't be associated as much with cardiovascular disease, and that's because um, the the reason that these saturated fats raise LDL is because they take away triglycerides. So when you eat fat, um, chylomicron containing the fat goes to your liver. The fat is repackaged into triglycerides. If those triglycerides happen to have, and, and you know, it's, it's, and, and, and an ApoB is recruited and the triglycerides are all recruited to make up the lipoprotein, but if the fats in the, um, <coughs> if, if the fats in the um, triglycerides are, have a high meristic or lauric acid content, they'll be taken away from that ApoB before it's released and they'll be metabolized in the liver. Some of them will be turned to ketones. They'll just be used as energy by the liver. And so you'll be releasing, instead of a triglyceride-rich VLDL particle, you'll be re releasing something like an IDL particle or even an LDL particle. You'll be re releasing a, what, you know, what they call a large buoyant pattern or whatever, kind of straight from the liver um, without, you know, without passing go, without passing the other cells necessarily. Um, there's more production of of the kind of cholesterol-dense particles directly from the liver once the triglycerides are stripped off them. Now, what happens with um, unsaturated fats is that the, um, the ApoB itself can be degraded as a, you know, from, from a high monounsaturated, polyunsaturated um, perspective, which might be why those things tend to lower the LDL. But anyway, um, this happens for a reason. So... You know, if we understand why, what is the purpose of this? What is the evolutionary rationale for this rise in LDL from the fats, from the fasting and from, from the keto diet? Then we start to understand kind of where to place the idea of risk in this context, I think. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. That's obviously a lot of information in there, George. Yeah. You know, I, I don't. Hopefully, some people will hang into there and get their notebooks out. But you know, um, you know, and I and I know Dave. I've I've had dinner with Dave a number of occasions, and, and you know, we we're seeing this as sort of cholesterol 
you know, um, I want well, actually, I wanted to talk about, you know, because Stericast, we had Mike Eads on a while back, and he was talking about Stericasting, how it affects mitochondrial function, and, and, and shows it has a favorable uh, effect on, you know, mitochondrial function, I think has to do with, you know, the way it uh, metabolizes fat. I'd have to go listen to that show again to remember the exact details. But um, so, I mean, I, I like that you point out that, you know, these relationships, you know, and, and the, the causality, the assumptions of causality based on, again, the epidemiology is, is just terrible. And, and we're kind of stuck with a lot of this data out there that we've made these sort of assumptions on. And, and, and the, the nutritional epidemiology data is just, I mean, it's literally not even usable. Uh, I mean, yeah, if you, if you can't base your decisions on it, I don't think. I think if you base your decisions on, if you, um, for example, if you see some study where someone has a lower rate of colon cancer because they're not eating meat, which is not always the case, of course, but if you went by one of those studies um, you, and you stopped eating meat, you would actually have no way of knowing if you were the person who would avoid cancer by avoiding meat or if you were the pers actually person that's going to get cancer by avoiding meat. The difference is so small and it's so likely to be affected by bias that you actually are an idiot if you base your life, if you base your life decisions on that kind of stuff. Sure, if you think you understand the mechanisms, you know, go with, go, go with something if you think you understand the mechanisms, but just because there's an association, you, you actually would be you know you i think you would actually be a fool to go, to go i mean i was i know i was a fool i know i caused myself a lot of suffering by kind of soaking up that stuff and going with what it said and then i found out that you know probably 90 percent of it was you know counterproductive to my health um and um and you know there, there are better ways there are better ways of of getting evidence about stuff um yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a real problem that 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 kind of cheap and easy fake news kind of stuff kind of dominates the health discourse the way it, in the way it does, and the results of experiments with hard outcomes and you know and and biomarker data. You know, I trust biomarker data far more um, than I do than I do because uh, you know you're dealing with accurate measurements. They're reasonably accurate. I mean, there could be mistakes in that somebody may say they're they're fasted when they're not, for example, that kind of thing would, could, would, would have, you know, there's, there's, it's not going to be perfect, but, um, but biomarker data, it's, um, it is, um, um, I think more, more reliable and, um, and, and, it, and it tells you more about mechanisms, underlying mechanisms as well. It sort of tells you what's going on under the hood and it all makes, that all makes sense to me. Um, and, um, and, but as Dave has shown, it depends how it's analyzed. If you don't ask the right questions, if you don't ask, hey, what about this group with, you know, low TGHDL, does the, does the LDL matter for them? If you don't actually ask that question, then you, you're, you know, a large number of people are going to be left in ignorance and can still potentially be misled by, uh, I mean, for example, the, um, the HDL total cholesterol ratio, which is, or, or maybe it's the other way around, that's used in kind of standard risk calculations, I'd say that's a reason that's as good as triglyceride to HDL for people eating high carb diets, but I think it becomes irrelevant when you're eating a very low, low carb diet. It, you know, you, 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 the TGHDL is the marker of your reverse cholesterol transport, whether your body's, you know, handling cholesterol properly instead. And, and, um, so, 
Um, you know, we have, uh, it's, it's kind of like an Overton window kind of scenario where people are like, it's only conceivable that people are going to eat the way they've always eaten. And therefore, um, the measurements that are rel relevant to that state are going somehow relevant to all other states because we're just not looking at those. And, um, and then we're seeing, you know, we're seeing the stretch with things like, you know, the Iranian calculation for LDL is kind of the beginning you know, very small kind of beginning of a crack in that of saying, well, hang on, there are other frames, you know, there are other ways of looking at things that are answering questions for different groups of people. And so, um, yeah, so I think Dave's, Dave's research is kind of just opening up the analysis of the, of the evidence without um, to, to um, cover all eventualities, I think is the, the important thing. Yeah. yeah, you know, you brought up an interesting point when you're looking at like the context of what people are eating and, and so much of our research is done on folks following a standard American diet. And it, it, it seems to me like it's just one of those things where you learn a little bit and then you end up getting more questions <laughs> than you had originally. and You just kind of have to continually keep searching and, you know, it gets to that point where we can't look at it like in the one lens of, like you said, everyone's eating this very specific diet therefore these are the ranges or these are the this is the framework we need our our blood work or whatever to show you almost need to have a separate set of requirements for for each individual nutritional right. approach yeah yeah i mean if you're eating that diet then that's the blood work you want mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily the blood work that you want if you're eating a red some radically different pattern of macronutrient balance it's not necessarily the ideal one and you know, I mean, and I think you can you can really clearly see this with um, the fasting research, and I think it's the same for keto diet too. Is that LDL cholesterol goes up in healthy people, people normal weight, people high activity, and so on. These are the people that are going to see the rises in LDL. The people who are going to see a drop in LDL are the people with metabolic syndrome, obesity, type 2 diabetes. They're either going to see, you know, just the, the small rise that comes from the shift in particle size, or they're actually going to see a drop if it was, you know, pathologically elevated before. They're going to get a drop in LDL, at least until, you know, they fix their underlying problem. And so in that population, you know, in a population eating that way, if you kind of analyze that logically, you'd say, oh, hang on, if you have higher LDL, <laughs> when we test you, you're probably got, a, got the better prognosis, you know, because you're the, per, you're the fit and healthy person, of course. You know, you're not the person who's doing it because um, to reverse some clinical disease that's going to shorten your life. I mean, and of course, that's the other thing is that in most epidemiology, you screen out people with pre-existing diseases. So you might not see that. Um, so, um, <clears throat> um yeah, yeah. I mean, there needs to be different perspectives and different angles for looking at the bio. I mean, I, I, I do think biomarker data is kind of where it's at at a population level, but I think it needs to be conceptualized in, in, in a few different ways to be really valuable in the kind of new world that we're in of testing the extremes. Hey George, um, I want to shift gears again. I know you said you you were you were you could talk about addiction a little bit, and you you know you said in your history as a rock and roll dude, there's a lot of a lot of funny stuff going on around there. Talk to us a little bit about whatever you want to talk to about addiction, and and you know I'm just seeing you know again as an observer, you know I fortunately was able to steer clear of drug and alcohol addiction, you know my in my own personal life, but. Um, 
I am seeing people based on diet finding that these addictions are getting better. They're able to give up these things. I just want to get your perspective, what you want to talk about on, on that in particular. Yes, um, I was um, opiate addict for, I think, 25 years or something, I forget now. And um, I was on about 120 milligrams of methadone when I started, you know, trying to do something about things. I was smoking pot all day if I could, you know, just as much pot as I could. Um, I was injecting amphetamines when I could get them. I was, and I was also dependent on benzodiazepines. I was taking 40 milligrams of Valium a day. And when I learned the stuff about liver disease and um, supp- you know, j- just vitamins, and I just started like supplementing selenium, vitamin E, N-acetylcysteine, um, you know, magnesium, these sorts of things, um, I quite, quite quickly went through a, a change in my thinking because when you're an addict, you think you've got to take the stuff. You know, terrible things will happen if you don't. That's in the case of, you know, depend, you know dr- drugs that actually cause a physical dependence like um, benzodiazepines. You, you think, well, if I don't get my dose, it's just going to be hell, you know. And in the case of other substances that are more kind of compulsive, like amphetamines, you just, you don't think that, but you think, I can't resist it. If it comes up, I can't resist it. And, um, you, you know, there's no point trying. And um, and I went within, you know, a month or two to, to a place where I was like, um, well, I need, I'm running out of benzodiazepines. I've been taking them for years, you know. Um, uh, I have dreadful withdrawal symptoms if I don't have them. And, but the guy I'm getting them off is a total jerk and I never want to see him again. And what, would that be worth it? You know, not having them for that benefit of not, not being dependent on him would actually, yeah, that's, you know, I'd try that. I'd try going without them. And I did, and I actually enjoyed it. So how hard can it be to go without sleep for a couple of nights? And I actually, actually was a, a pleasurable experience. And, um, and I just thought, um, I, I, I think now that what happens is when you're addicted to substances, you, they take over your brain. You know, you have the brain disease of addiction, as they call it, and you start to rationalize and you start to have thoughts put in place that um, are um, kind of mimetic, mimetic, like they preserve the habit and um, the rationalizations. And I just started thinking like someone who hadn't been using for that long. So I started thinking like someone who'd only tried it once or twice and was making normal decisions about it based on whether I enjoyed it or not again. And um, the same with amphetamines. I was like, I don't actually enjoy this. Well, I don't have to do it again because I'm not actually enjoying it. And that wouldn't have been a, that wouldn't have stopped me from using it before at all. And, you know, it just, it's, just, it's just a compulsion. So I just sort of went back to this kind of younger state of the brain where I was able to kind of, you know, rationalize properly about things and not, not, not rationalize on their behalf, but just kind of, you know, think for myself. And I, I got rid of most of these habits. The, the methadone was harder, but I started coming down slowly, just did a slow reduction over, over many years and just learned how to deal with the withdrawals, you know, what supplements helped when you were reducing the dose, what, um, what kind of meditation practices, yoga and things like that helped, you know, because a lot of it's to do with your body being just not, you know, not relaxed and not able to relax without the drugs. So it, that stuff helped and um, just slowly came off and never went back. Now, I wasn't addicted to alcohol at the time, so I have no idea 
if it would help with alcohol, this kind of these kind of ideas would work with alcohol at all. I suspect that might be harder um, because alcohol is also a food, so you have a whole alcohol is, a, is is kind of a different situation. So I'm not saying this would work with alcohol because I don't know. Um, but at the same time, I had been an alcoholic before I got Hep C, definitely. And I just only reason I stopped drinking is because I was just unable to tolerate any amount of alcohol. So it's like being on antabuse for 20 years. And I drink now, and I don't feel like I'm going to go back into that state at all. You know, I definitely don't enjoy drinking more than a couple of drinks, and and very rarely do it. So um, I feel pretty you know secure that. I'm not an alcoholic anymore, but whether that's because of the 20 year sobriety period uh, or because of these changes is not, you know, age or something isn't clear. Yeah, that's all interesting, George. What, what would you, or would you mind sharing with us kind of like what your current nutritional protocol is? Like, what are you eating on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you have a specific routine or things you're focusing on the most? Yeah, um, I like to eat eggs. I like to eat. I like to not eat carbs in the morning and have eggs for breakfast. And sometimes I don't eat breakfast. So if I feel like oh, I've been eating a bit too much of the wrong things or whatever, you know, having a bit too much chocolate or whatever, I'll, um, I'll, you know, like um, just skip breakfast for a day, and that kind of helps put me back, put put, put me back into a kind of a more, um, yeah, I like I like my digestion to feel easy. That's kind of like an important thing for me. So I like eating kind of calorie dense food and. It's easily digestible, which is, includes a lot of animal food and fat. So I have, for breakfast, have eggs cooked in ghee, usually with chilies. I'm quite addicted to hot food. For I won't usually eat lunch unless I've skipped breakfast and didn't really mean to, in which case I might have, you know, a, you know, a chorizo sausage or something from a deli and, um, and, and a piece of fruit. And um, so, yeah, I definitely, I do eat fruit. Um, I um and then for dinner I usually have you know it could be anything like a you know mince stew or a, or a fish curry but some some meal that's reasonably high fat and made with usually ghee or coconut or um, olive oil and um, I'll um, yeah I might throw you know throw a bit of potato in it or something like that quite often have potatoes at, at at in the evening so I'm kind of going for a kind of low carb approach around in um who's the guy that wrote life without bread um lots kind of right around his ratios of about 70 grams of carb a day on average but sometimes that's no carbs and sometimes that's a bit more and I don't you know I'll have the occasional high carb meal um, if I'm out, because I'd, I'd rather eat a plate of rice than a plate of soybean oil, you know, any day. So, so if that's the, you know, if that's the choice, I'll have, I'll have a low fat rice meal. I think I handle those quite well. Yeah. George, what, I mean, you said you, you, you were a musician for years. Um, what, what do you do these days? I know you're, I know you've got a, a pretty interesting, you know, like we talked about at the beginning of the blog, that's got some really just very interesting data up there that's you know all kinds of different topics um yes i am um, i work for um a business called precure which is a health coach certification business in new zealand so we've set up a it's kind of an online academy and we have um so this is set up by grant schofield um louise schofield um karen's and simon Swanley, the people who i've been working with in my research over the years but they decided that um, you can probably reach more people um, in the private field 
by providing the medical background for a health coach. So it's a health coach certificate, but it's one that's um, very much tied into the medical system here. So we have um, you know, critical care nurses, GPs, pharmacists giving the courses. So it's about using the kind of um, you know, stuff we're talking about, the sort of diet and lifestyle exercise advice, um, but using it within a framework where doctors are going to accept it, you know, you know, like clinicians are going to accept it. It's a health coach certificate that's not woo. It doesn't have, we're, we're not doing much about herbs or supplements yet, you know. I mean, there's probably a place for that at some stage, but we're not, you know, that's, that kind of thing isn't, isn't the focus. The focus is on getting the best out of healthcare and getting the best out of health for um, uh, people who need to be, you know, supported on their journey. And, and, um, and, the, the way it works is we have, you know, very competitively priced courses, um, about, th about a third the price of the comparable US courses, but um, we also have free courses that we have a thousand people enrolled in the last one that are a, a kind of um, a basic lifestyle challenge. It'll give someone a, a, you know, a one month trial of, of kind of a healthy behavior of their choice. So there are, there are vegan and vegetarian options, there are Mediterranean diet options, and there are low carb options. And I think, you know, low carb ones, usually the most popular, but we don't, uh, we, are, we, we kind of need to be agnostic in this field because not everyone is going to want to go through low carb. And there are plenty of people who can benefit from other approaches or who will, you, you know, um, want to do things their way and and and, um, and yeah yes yeah, so that's the new project and that's um it's called Precure and um with a k and um that's up and running pretty good now and we've got our own podcast so we've got our own podcast and we'll have to get you on it one day to talk about this whole car carnivore deal which we have not discussed yet which is fascinating for me yeah, you guys, I mean, New Zealand's well positioned to, to do well with car. You guys got so many damn sheep running around there. I remember when I was there, was like 60 million sheep and 3 million people. So you guys are inundated with lamb. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, we've traded a lot of our lamb for dairy cattle. And that's kind of like um, wrecked the countryside a bit um, because it's, you know, a more intensive form of, fast, of farming. It's less um, pasture, you know, it's, it's kind of less pasture. So now we're importing palm kernel expeller for God's sake, and stacking up the sheep, uh, st stacking up the cattle on the land and um, in a way so that their, their waste can no longer fertilize the land. It's just running into the rivers and it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a fuck up. And um, it's for the export market, you know, I mean, we only eat a fraction of what we make anyway. So, I mean, there's only, few, like you say, there's only um, four or five million people here and, you know, we could afford to eat like kings um, if we, you know, without without you know, making a dent in, in 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 that production necessarily, and um, it's um, but yeah, I mean, going back to sheep would be a bit. It would be a good idea, I think, for certainly um, because you know, then you've got you got the wool, so you don't need plastic, and you've got um, you know, retains carbon for a long time. Wool does, and you've got um, yeah, um, but yeah, no. It, it is a good part. Like, I look out my window, I can see sheep in the paddock down the road. And also, I don't just see sheep. I see biodiversity there. I see more plant species than I can count. I can see birds, including um, native birds that are sort of on the semi-endangered list. And I, can, I know there's lizards there. I know there's you know, rodents and things. I know there's fish in the stream. It's a healthy stream in that paddock. You know, 
it, it, it's, it's, it's biodiversity and you're not going to see biodiversity in any plant monoculture field ever anywhere. You know, that's anathema to, to it. it to, um, biodiversity is anathema to, you know, raising plants like that and um, raising livestock on pasture the way we do it anyway. It's, um, you know, this, uh, I, I just see, you know, trees, you need trees, shelter breaks, you need, you know, you, you'll have patches of scrub and you'll have, you'll have streams and so forth and you have birds coming and going and feeding on the land just, you know, and, and these are, these are on, the, on by the sea, so these are seabirds and some of them are protected species and, you know, it's all good. So, yeah. yeah, when I when I lived there, I was in you know I was in Cambridge, which is just a bit south of Auckland, you know, kind of just near Hamilton down there, not far, not too far from, maybe an hour and a half away. And I remember I would walk from the place I was staying to the gym. I'd go training. I didn't, you know, invariably there'd be a bunch of sheep in people's yards just running around. I mean, they're all over the place. And that was, of course, that was in the ni- early 1990s, years ago, and back when you probably only had three million people. And I, that's where my yeah. stats came from. But. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, I mean, every time I got invited to dinner, it was some kind of lamb with maybe a roasted kumara, you know, the little, your version of a sweet potato. And, uh, that was a, a pretty solid diet, I think. And I, and, you know, I, and I don't know what, uh, what's going on in New Zealand wise. I know there, there's some concern there are people complaining that like people in, uh, Tonga and some of these other South Pacific islands are, are getting fat because they're exporting, you know, mutton flaps and, and, you know, supposedly this fatty lamb they're exporting is causing problems. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I actually, um, I actually heard this story, and I thought oh, I'm going to research this, and I read someone's written a book about it, and it turns out it's just one of these class-based things, you know, that that um, if you're a member of the elite, you see your lamb flaps as basically as dog food, and people eating dog food can't be healthy, and if you look at the the diet that people are actually eating they can be eating a lot of lamb flaps but they're also be eating a ton of ice cream a whole lot of noodles and stuff and it's definitely a situation where of course you know the carbohydrates are driving are, are, are driving the health problems um you know the problem is you know diabetes you know huge rising rates of diabetes in 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 in, in these places whether people are eating lamb flaps or not and um or, or turkey tails i mean i wouldn't eat turkey tails but um and i suppose it's sort of you know they're adding to the polyunsaturated fat content of the diet but um um it's it's clearly driven in anywhere anywhere in the islands that anyone does a, a you know any type of proper analysis it's being driven by um um you know carbohydrates and including starchy carbohydrates noodles and 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 you know breads and so forth um because you know the lamb flaps you know won't be that different from the traditional foods which would have included pork and um <coughs> in, a, in a lot of these islands i mean new zealand didn't have a native native pig species but other parts of the south pacific they um you had pigs and you certainly had you know, high coconut diets and high saturated fat diets, of course, and in some places because the taro, which is the root vegetable, doesn't grow everywhere and small atolls. It doesn't like um, the salty soil. So you have places where very high, very high saturated fat intakes and from coconut and very low cardiovascular disease and things. Yeah, George, I mean, we, 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 we get a recurring theme that, you know, it seems like these seed oils and refined carbohydrates and sugars seem to be the problem, and, and perhaps meat is not the problem, but, uh, you know, <laughs> you just have to keep beating this message to kind of, kind of reverse yeah. brainwash about yeah, yeah, I mean, three generations yeah. of people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, try taking out the things that you weren't eating 200 years ago 
and then tell me how you go, you know? Yeah, just try that first, you know, that would seem to be the obvious thing. Try taking out the things that, you know, that, that weren't being eaten when your ancestors were healthy and, um, and, and you, know, um, you know, work out that, what, that, what that, that diet looks like, which will be different for every region. And, um, you, you know, these modern diseases should go away. I mean, they do go away when you test this hypothesis and, um, and, and then um, just make sure you get fed, you get the nutrients you need apart from that. Hey, uh, George, just because, I mean, a lot, I mean, Grant Schofield, I know he's up in Auckland. I think he's at, was he at University of Auckland? And Karen's in, I know she's a dietitian somewhere in that area. And what are they up to these days? I know I saw a paper they wrote a couple of years back calling, I think it was called the Unifying Theory of Chronic Disease and Pointing at Hyperinsulinemia. Are they still, are they still leaning towards that as a thought, as a, as a, as a hypothesis? Or are they, are they looking at other things as well now? Well, definitely hyperinsulinemia is, is, is definitely our focus, you know, our focus, everything, everything comes back to that, you know, like 90% of, of, um, of, of kind of these, you know, chronic modern lifestyle diseases. It's, it's there, you know, you, 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 I, I've yet to see any association of any disease with normal, normal insulin, you know, like what do you call it? Normal insulinemia, you know, it's, it's like that, that, that's, that's, that's just not, a, not a thing. And yeah, you know, I mean, obviously the drivers of hyperinsulinemia uh, can be varied, you know, it can be varied, but um, mostly of course, it's just overeating the processed food. It's, it's very simple. So um, I, I think that if there's any shift, it's towards um, implementing practical solutions and, and also, you know, testing and pricing practical solutions and doing the psych psychological testing, you know, what is it that makes people take up a healthy behavior? Um, what, you know, what do you need to do to help people? What are all the various things that will make it easier for people to, to, um, improve their health, you know, get their insulin down, improve their nutrition. Um, so it's kind of move, it, it is moving into the practical field and that's where Precure comes in. It's, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like what practical steps do we actually need? Can we take to help people? What practical steps will help people? How can we change, you know, the behavior of millions of people in a favorable direction? And, um, <clears throat> Yes, yes, that, that's that's um, really the project now. George, um, I'm just wondering what the climate in New Zealand like is right now with regard to nutrition. Um, I know like, uh, you know, because New Zealand's a relatively smaller country, not that many people. I mean, I, I point to a place like Iceland where I've been and I mean, they've got, you know, a population that's, you know, a, actually a very large carnivore population right now because they realize what their ancestors grew up around and they, they realize that it wasn't very plausible that they had fruits and vegetables 365 days a year on some frozen rock, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the, in the North Arctic, you know, Atlantic sea, but um, you know, in New Zealand, in Australia, we're seeing this craziness with, you know, the vegan protests and, and the farmers fighting back. And now the, the, the uh, you know, the, what is it? The prime minister is it prime minister or a president of Australia? I can't remember the the, the title, but is pushing back, and, and now they're going to start heavily fighting. Is that some of that stuff bleeding over into New Zealand? Is New Zealand going through this crisis about plant based versus animal based, or what, what's what's the climate uh, like down there in New Zealand? 
New Zealand's always a bit more sane, you know. Um, it's and, I'm, uh, and I know that that you know stuff does exist here, and I know there's a lot of kind of vegan evang evangelicism among the kids. And you know, my kids are teenagers, and you and you know, you definitely see this in their peer group of this kind of peer pressure to be vegan, and that it all seems to go along with you know anxiety and depression and so forth and and as as um as it does in sort of epidemiology and you know so it's a bit of a worry you know it's, it it, it <coughs> it's, it's a worry when you're a parent and you know you hope your kids aren't kind of over over affected by it and you have the the pushing of the junk foods and you know anywhere anywhere trendy because i go out to concerts and sometimes there's these you know trendy little stalls selling vegan junk food and you know the, the venue might be all vegan or something like that and um so there's definitely a, a growing vegan junk food market for basically oils and starch you know is basically what you know the cheap things that that um the money's coming coming and you know soy soy protein and and you know i mean i mean this stuff's concerning and um and there's just a kind of like a I just a kind of like bending over and taking an attitude from the nutritional establishment who should know better. You know, they should know what nutrients are, what a, nutrition, a nutritionally replete diet is. And they're just kind of bamboozled by the huge smokescreen of bullshit that, that the plant-based crowd can generate um, using you know, shonky studies that just wouldn't be accepted. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, you know, something like Neil Barnard's studies, which are inspiring to this crowd, they don't have proper controls. They're sometimes just um, sort of p-hacking an, an, an older study for a different outcome. Of course, he knows all the outcomes. He can just hide the unfavorable ones. And, um, but there's no, you know, the controls, you're meant to have an inten equal intensity of intervention so that the control group feels special too. So they feel they're being treated, you know, they need to feel they're, they're taking the same, you know, doing as much. The control group needs to feel they're doing as much as the intervention group to, to compare to, um, you, you know, to, to run a controlled trial. And that doesn't happen. He just says, oh, keep eating the standard American diet. You know, well, you know, we already know how that turns out. And, um, and, and and so you have this um, lower standard of science. You have this this kind of thinnest study of science. You dig down into the references in these papers, and you find things that are probably fraudulent, you know, or that are just supposition and so forth. Um, the mechanisms are are just fishing, you know. It's 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 um it's not good enough. It's not good enough, and it shouldn't be allowed to kind of dominate academic discourse the way it does. And there's just a lot of wishful thinking going on. There's just a lot of magical thinking that this will solve our problems. And um, without actually looking at whether it is solving the problems for individuals, you know, is it, look at the people doing it, study them. Is it solving their problems, you know? And, and which, which problems is it solving and which is it causing? Um, and, you know, if you have, if you have paper after paper, and they're just associational, but they're saying increased risk of depression and anxiety, increased risk of substance abuse in children, um, and, you're, um, and you're just ignoring that because you think, but it's a healthy thing, it's going to save the planet, and you're just ignoring that, you're not, you're not respecting your population, you're not taking care of the people that you should be taking care of, you should be measuring this stuff. Whenever someone's admitted to hospital, they write down their dietary preference, you have this data, 
you can look and see if there are trends in hospital admissions under different causes for people eating different, you know, especially meat avoiding diets because these are going to be written down. So you can start, there's a ways you can study this relatively easily. And there are other, you know, that may say that you need to study it with more intensity. And, um, and, and this just isn't being done. And I mean, it's bizarre, you know, if you read the, the animal research on say soy isoflavones and you think well if they gave bacon to a rat and it did this it would be a warning on the fucking packet you know <laughs> and um it's just it's just you know it's, 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 it really is a kind of blindness it's a kind of nose in the ear attitude from these academics who because they you know don't eat a lot of meat themselves and wish they ate none um then you know they think that the whole world's going to you know, you know that everyone's going to be happy being like that, and um, and there's no kind of real, there's no good reason, there's no convincing reason why they should be and why they shouldn't be unhappy instead. Yeah, you know, and we saw some similar outcomes with other stuff too, with like Dr. McDougall's starch-based diet protocol, where you know the conveniently the folks on the starch-based diet were also you know not smoking, not drinking, and there was a lifestyle intervention like exercise. So there's all these other arms to health that were in, introduced that weren't. And like, like you mentioned, um, the control groups probably didn't feel special because they probably weren't told to keep eating your meat, but also start exercising, also stop smoking, also stop drinking, so on and so forth. And uh, you know that would have maybe been a better approach to that sort of a, of a study, or at least one that was authentic. Yes, if you did that, I mean, it's okay to do that as a pilot study, okay? So that's the first study you do. You don't have a lot of money. You want to get interest. It's okay to have no control. You know, it's okay to have just a, a case-matched control, as they call it. But um, once you've done that, if you want people to take you seriously, you have to move on to proper controlled trials. And it's not like um, Barnard doesn't have the funding for that kind of thing. You know, he's, he has millions of dollars of donations every year. Um, and um, the, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you, you just have to kind of match the intensity. And, and, and you know, if, if, if low-carb doctors continued to put out studies like that, they'd just go in the bin. And, you know, they, they'd be discounted from meta-analysis. They'd be, um, uh, you, you know, they, they would just be like, they wouldn't be talked about, you know. <laughs> and, and plant-based somehow gets away with considering it itself equivalent to other branches of nutrition science when it's not performing to the same standard and doesn't have the same evidence base and doesn't have the same kind of mechanistic base because um when you um when you're looking at something as simple as carbohydrate restriction you can find um a whole lot of basic mechanisms that a textbook um biochemistry that explain what you're seeing and so it's kind of um you've got a very solid mechanistic base there and and of things that you can look for and things that they all kind of you, you know um and they're all rel and it's relevant and with the plant based you have a kind of a grab bag of things like tmao or something like that you know which is actually not not even a difference between a plant-based and animal-based diet they just want to think it is and um they um and there's there's still no mechanism why that really explains anything and and yet you know that'll be used to pad out the paper that sort of stuff will be used to pad out the paper because there isn't isn't enough 
the only kind of proper mechanistic stuff you can say is, oh, well, it's lowering insulin. You know, it's lowering insulin because you're getting less calories because you have less bioavailable food, for example, that sort of thing. Um, or, you know, you, the macronutrient ratio is going in a particular direction and it has, has that effect. And, um, and um, you, know, you know, that's a, that's a solid explanation for what benefits they see, but those benefits you'll see with other approaches as well. It's nothing special about the plant based from that from that from, from that avenue. And um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it's 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 just you know, it's not for us for a science science that's um is taking over the world and kind of like taking over and impressing people, the standard isn't good enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean I, I definitely see that. We we have this <laughs> You know, and, and people will say, well, it is, it's all we have. It's all we could afford, and therefore we should accept it. And, and really, it's, it's just very poor science that we're, we're supposed to make well, decisions on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, if that's all you have, then, then you, you know, um, you judge it accordingly. You know, it's, oh, that's, yeah, you're basically looking at, you're basically looking at low-carb signs in 1990, for example. You know, if that, if that could be a comparison. Although even there, you're still going to find some really rigorous, <laughs> clinical trials run by you know proper doctors and that you know proper scientists but but you you just go sort of if you take low carb back to an earlier era when when the science wasn't when it wasn't such a a good body of science people didn't take it as seriously you know it was like a harder it was a harder sell and so it should be a harder sell and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be just like this kind of wishful thinking attitude that um it'll all work out fine in the end. You know, the end, the end will justify the means. Is basically what we're getting. What we're getting from people, we deserve a lot better from public health scientists than this wishful thinking that the end is going to justify the means because it's virtuous, you know, because you're not killing anything. So it's got to be good. Um, you know, there's nothing in our evolutionary history that, that tells us that that's actually um, a sensible approach. You know, this is... We, you do need stronger evidence because you're going against, you know, you're going against the whole evolutionary process. Well, I mean, some plant-based advocates will say humans were clearly herbivores. Which I think yeah, well, that, that, this example of what I'm talking about, throw, just throw science out the window when it doesn't suit you. That's, you know. Yeah. Um, you, you, you brought up soy isoflavones, which are, which are, part of the class of polyphenols that are in soy and you mentioned that they have some significant deleterious effects in animals can you can you just describe those a little bit just for people that don't know because that's something that uh, a lot of people may not know about well, yeah, um, yeah yeah there's some rat research is, is uh, um, that it changes the behavior in ways that you wouldn't want to change human behavior so you know you can increase anxiety um, um, you know, the, the, in, in rats, the female is normally outgoing, the outgoing one, the one that will make the friends or the, you know, the, the explore the new, the new context. And um, that totally disappears when they feed soy at a, at a level that you can get in a human diet. You know, like not, this is not an exaggerated thing of concentrating the toxins. It's quite possible to get this much by eating soy um, meat substitutes. And, you know, that's probably part of the picture when you're looking at, um, when you're looking at um, the meat avoiding diets and the risk of mental illness, it's probably part of the picture is not just not getting enough B12 and so forth, but also these plant toxins um, that are interacting with hormonal, 
processes that um, are part of you know the normal mood um, sort of mood regulation in in, in humans and um, kind of the way we you know um, the way we socialize and so forth um, so you know but again it's an area there should be more research and if we were talking about something that a meat did I think there would be that research, you know, I think that would have been done. I think you'd know for sure you'd be following humans and, and, and going, well, this does or doesn't, you know, kind of correlate or explain anything, you know, but, but, you know, because it's a plant, it gets, it gets a break, you know, and the end, another, another thing is oxalates. Um, you, you know, we're seeing cases of, um, <laughs> not just kidney stones, but actual kidney damage, ne nephropathy caused by, um, high intake of spinach smoothies and things you know high oxalate intake probably with other factors like a low calcium intake because you know if you had dairy food with the spinach it wouldn't have been so bad but you go to a naturopath and they go and and potentially you'd be told you know take you know or you go on the internet even and, and it'd be like the more spinach smoothies you have the healthier you'll be the more um high dose ascorbic acid you take the healthier you'll be the more collagen supplements you take all three things are going to fill your blood with oxalic acid, um, which is a high, you know, it's a, it, it, it's, it's um, extremely toxic at, you know, so if you get the level sufficient and the level does con tend to concentrate in the kidneys and um, you're seeing cases of kidney disease just caused by, by those three factors. And, um, and, and especially in the case of the dietary oxalate, not the other two metabolic oxalates, but in the case of the dietary oxalate, also having a low calcium diet is another another factor because it will bind with calcium in the gut and and will be you know won't be absorbed. And um, instead, you know, it gets into it, it goes through the kidneys and it um, binds with the calcium in the kidneys, and then you have problems. And um, and it's um, again here we can see here's a plant. It's actually causing a condition. Where's the warning? Who's telling anyone about this? Um, and but here's a, a meat product, and you know we think there may be, a, you think it may be causing a disease. We'll tell everybody every day in every news broadcast. You know, it's it's there's something a bit wrong with the way we look at things, and it's really, I suppose, come from the whole puritanical religious idea of you know the concept of sin and um, versus virtue. And so a virtuous thing that will, you know, kill you or mess you up is, um, <coughs> is still going to be sold and promoted in a way that, um, whereas uh, an animal thing that might do that thing, you know, a sinful thing that might have that effect, but we don't really know if it does or not, um, is, is going to be like a guilty kind of thing, you know? It's... it's, it's um, there's kind of something wrong in the human mind that 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 um that allows this, and it's it does seem to be getting exaggerated. Drew, I don't know if you've given any any thought to this or, or, or paid attention, but you know there is a significant uh, in recent years sort of a, a backlash against protein, particularly animal protein. A lot of a lot of people are out there saying that you know we need to sort of minimize our exposure to animal protein because. It's going to upregulate uh, the mTOR pathway and that sort of thing. Have you have you delved into that at all and, and looked at uh, well, some of the concerns around that? Um, well, when I was um, when I was 
for the supplements I took because N-acetylcysteine is fairly expensive and the cheapest way to take to um, have glutathione precursors in my diet and SAM acetyl methionine precursors was to supplement methionine. And I supplemented methionine for years at fairly high doses. So I had a double, you know, doubled my intake of methionine. I never got cancer. In fact, I felt great. People always used to tell me how young I looked. And um, so I'm skeptical about the idea that methionine restriction is necessary or desirable or that methionine is, you know, a cause of disease. I really, I really am. Um, I mean, you know, that's just an N equals one, but it's an N equal one that most people have, you know, that very few people on earth have done. Um, and, um, and, you know, mTOR, I'm sure it's driven, you know, by carbohydrates as well. Um, I don't really know, you know, I don't really, I haven't really look, looked at this, but um, um, interesting thing about mTOR is that mTOR inhibitors raise LDL cholesterol and, you know, keto diet probably, you know, it's probably one of the mechanisms might be through the, the mTOR um, pathway in a way. Um, yeah, I, I really, I really don't see this. I really don't, I, I really don't see, I don't see people who under eat protein um, as necessarily being healthy at all. You know, yeah, I mean, that's what, the, that, that's what the, the human experience seems to be. Uh, there's no real good compelling human data that shows people restricting protein or doing better. George, this has been very informative, a lot of, a lot of information. We're so glad we had you on. We had a lot of people who were excited to find out that you were coming on, and so we look forward to uh, getting this one out there. Um, are there any uh, – where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? What do you let, tell people what, you're, you know, what, what that sort of stuff is. And, uh, Zach, I don't know if you have anything else you want to, you want to get into. Well, I'm, at, um, I'm on Twitter at Pudleg. P-U-D-D-L-E is the name of my band with a G on the end for George. Um, and I'm um, on Blogger and at Hopeful Geranium or IamNotADoctor.com. Um, and um, um, where else am I? Precure. Look up the Precure website if you're interested in the health coach um, thing and, um, and have a look at what courses we've got available. We will be having um, low-carb, keto, kind of more in-depth modules on, you know, we'd, we'd, we're making those now of kind of like a, a 2.0 series. So the 1.0 is, an, is, is a, the kind of basic co courses and then for um, health professionals or people who've gone through all the other courses and have enough background, then we have more, we're, we're doing the, the practical courses um, um, in-depth sort of specialized ones now um and um yeah i mean those are places you can find me awesome george well we certainly dove into a few interesting topics and i think uh, i think our listeners will enjoy this one so thanks again for giving us your time coming on the show thank you Zach. thank you very much yeah, you're you are you are our third podcast of the day, so we're 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 good. we're glad we made it through. <laughs> I actually recorded a couple of podcasts for Precure yesterday with Grant. Um, we Yeah, Libby Jenkinson, who's a pharmacist who has the um, Cut the Carbs website, which is a sort of massive low carb um, diet website. Again, that's that practical approach of how how do you reach people? Here's someone who's actually reaching people, and we want to you know find out how that how that works and we also did one with um, Cliff Harvey which is an in-depth he's an in-depth keto researcher who's run some um, 
you know, proper experiments, controlled experiments of various aspects of keto performance and um, what, what happens in the body with ketone supplements and MCT as well. Um, and and um, yeah, yeah, so we, we'll have our own podcast as well. So we'll get you on it. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'm, I'd be happy to come on, and I'm, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure Zach would too. So thank you yeah, very man. much, George. Hey, take care. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing, and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.